Oh, good evening. Uh, my name is Lauren, Lauren Franchuk. It's good to be with you. Uh, I don't think I'll say any much more right now. I think it's, it's time to just focus on, on the Word of God. If I um, introduce anything more about myself, it'll probably come up in the message, but uh, I'd just like to um, thank you for this opportunity to worship with you. And of course, uh, our worship would, would be nothing if it weren't based on, on what God has spoken to us. And so we turn our thoughts tonight um, to his word. I'd like to read, you, uh, read with you from Luke chapter 22, uh, verses 47 through 53. And then um, moving on to chapter 23, uh, the first 25 verses of Luke 23. So Luke 22, 47 through 53. <clears throat> While he was speaking, there came a crowd. And the man called Judas, one of the twelve, was leading them. He drew near to Jesus to kiss him. But Jesus said to him, Judas, would you betray the Son of Man with a kiss? And when those who were around him saw what would, fo what would follow, they said, Lord, shall we strike with the sword? And one of them struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his right ear. But Jesus said, no more of this. And he touched his ear and healed him. Then Jesus said to the chief priests and the officers of the temple and the elders who had come out against him, Have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs? When I was with you day after day in the temple, you did not lay hands on me. But this is your hour and the power of darkness. I'm going to move on to chapter 23, verse 1. Then the whole company of them arose and brought him before Pilate. And they began to accuse him, saying, We found this man misleading our nation and forbidding us to give tribute to Caesar and saying that he himself is Christ, a king. And Pilate asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him, You have said so. Then Pilate said to the chief priests and the crowds, I find no guilt in this man. But they were urgent, saying, he, sin he stirs up the people, teaching throughout all Judea, from Galilee even to this place. When Pilate heard this, he asked whether the man was a Galilean. And when he learned that he belonged to Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him over to Herod, who was himself in Jerusalem at that time. When Herod saw Jesus, he was very glad, for he had long desired to see him, because he had heard about him, and he was hoping to see some sign done by him. So he questioned him at some length, but he made no answer. The chief priests and the scribes stood by, vehemently accusing him, and Herod with his soldiers treated him with contempt and mocked him. Then, arraying him in splendid clothing, he sent him back to Pilate. 
And Herod and Pilate became friends with each other that very day, for before this they had been at enmity with each other. Pilate then called together the chief priests and rulers and the people and said to them, You brought me this man as one who was misleading the people, and after examining him before you, behold, I did not find this man guilty of any of your charges against him. Neither did Herod, for he sent him back to us. Look, nothing deserving death has been done by him. I will therefore punish and release him. But they all cried out together, Away with this man and release to us Barabbas. A man who had been thrown into prison for an insurrection started in the city and for murder. Pilate addressed them once more. Desiring to release Jesus, but they kept shouting, Crucify, crucify him. A third time he said to them, Why, what evil has he done? I have found in him no guilt deserving death. I will therefore punish and release him. But they were urgent, demanding with loud cries that he should be crucified. And their, cry, their voices prevailed. So Pilate decided that their demand should be granted. He released the man who had been thrown into prison for insurrection and murder, for whom they asked, but he delivered Jesus over to their will. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we um, seek you tonight. Uh, wherever we are in our life, wherever we are in our walk with you, we trust you tonight to work through your word, through your Holy Spirit, uh, to open our eyes, to behold just how, how, um, how deep is our sin and how, how great is your mercy and grace toward us and how, um, how great a love it is that sent Jesus, your Son, to the cross. May we seek Him and know Him and love Him even more because of being here today, this evening. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. <clears throat> my wife and I, my wife's name is Lenore, and she's here with me tonight. Um, we recently drove uh, for three days to, to Florida. Uh, I'll back up and say we about a year, a little over a year ago, we we um, um, retired from full time ministry and moved from North Dakota. Uh, who was it? Denny, I think, was expressing his sympathies for living there. Um, but we moved from North Dakota to uh, the Sioux Falls area, and um, so we have a little bit more time. Um, and we, we recently drove to Florida to stay with some friends and to uh, see some sights. Um, for the first few days, my wife's sister and her, and her daughter, our niece, uh, from Western Canada, flew to uh, Florida, to Orlando, and joined us for a few days. Now, our niece, what is she, 27, I think, 27-year-old young lady, loves history and loves to travel, loves to plan sightseeing trips. And one of the places that she wanted to see in Florida was um, 
the Kennedy Space Center. Have you been there, anybody? It's, it's quite a place. Um, uh, when, of course, we saw several launch pads and giant buildings where spacecraft are assembled and uh, historic rockets on display that carried uh, space capsules and then the shuttles into space. And uh, in one of the buildings was, a, was an actual, the actual command center, which was used when the first astronauts landed on the moon. And there, uh, and so this, this room was filled with these computer screens and old equipment, uh, you know, from, from that age, from the uh, 60s and 70s, that was used. But on one large video screen um, uh, directed toward the, the audience was uh, the former astronaut Gus Grissom, and he was describing the thousands of workers uh, that were behind that moon mission, supporting it in so many ways, each one uh, doing their part. And one of the things he said just struck me, I, I guess in relation to, to the cross. Uh, he said, um, in a way you could say, we all went to the moon. We all went to the moon. And I suppose you could say that about the, the cross, the crucifixion and the death of Jesus Christ. Um, that old spiritual, and thank you for singing it tonight, uh, it asks the question, were you there when they crucified my Lord? In a way, yes, you could say, we were all there. We all took part in that death. As I read these accounts in the Bible of Jesus' arrest and his trial, and I see these various characters um, and the part they played in, in putting Jesus to death. It's hard not to ask myself. Um, it's hard not to think, which one am I like? Uh, would I be like, for instance, Judas, who is described in chapter 22, verse 47, as one of the twelve, numbered as one of the twelve. He comes to the garden. He's leading a group of authorities and soldiers straight to Jesus and planting a kiss on his cheek to uh, identify Jesus. What made him do that? What made him turn on Jesus? Well, we know uh, back in chapter 22, the third verse says, Satan entered into him. Satan took control of him. But why did, he, why did he do that? Why did he go to the dark side? What were his motives in this betrayal? It's been suggested, for one, that uh, he did not like the way things were going with Jesus. All this talk about suffering and death in Jerusalem. And he became disillusioned with Jesus. Uh, Jesus was not his kind of Messiah, after all. But others have also pointed out that, uh, pointed to his greed. Um, he occasionally helped himself to the treasury, we know, the group treasury. He was out for his own gain, it appears. So Judas was a disciple in name, um, but not in heart. He was a pretender, offering uh, Jesus a kiss, but in reality out to destroy Jesus. It's not all that hard. I don't think, to be a pretender, 
to, uh, to play the, the Christian game, you know, to, to look respectable, to show up in church, to, um, to give our offerings, to keep our language clean, to use spiritual-sounding words, but all the while thinking, what's, what's in it for me? What, what can I get out of this? You know, maybe I can drum up some extra business or impress these folks more or, or um, uh, get the family's approval. Putting on an act, uh, I suppose it's something we all do at one time or another. We might not be a, G, uh, a Judas, but do I say things, do I do things just to look like a disciple? Just to enrich myself? Or maybe I'm like the religious leaders. They were there. The elders, the uh, chief priests, the teachers of the law who, who came to that place to seize Jesus. There were no pretenders here. They didn't hide their, their hatred for Jesus. They wanted him out of the way. Why? Well, some had their religious reasons. They, um, um, Jesus claimed equality with God. They called that blasphemy. Jesus did miracles. He had a huge following. They became envious and uh, too proud to, to look honestly at this, at this man and, and admit that he was who he said he was. And so they did not want to lose their hold on the people. There were others of the leaders who had political reasons. I'm thinking of the more secular-minded uh, Sadducees, that group of Jews and teachers who, who, um, who, did, who they denied the supernatural. They didn't believe in miracles. They didn't believe in the resurrection. They were concerned more about political realities. And so here was Jesus disturbing the status quo, claiming to be a Messiah. If the Romans found out that this rebel king was out there among the people, uh, surely they would clamp down and, and they would lose... Um, the Jews would lose their remaining freedoms. So in their eyes, he was endangering their, their national security. They loved their nation. Nothing wrong with that, but they loved their nation so much that they'd, that they'd rather see Jesus uh, shoved aside, put out of the way, instead of um, protecting their nation. So all they, they all had their reasons, self-serving reasons. They you know, we've got to protect our power, protect our position. Would I be like them? I don't hate Jesus, but, but do I love my position so much? My, my security, maybe it's my job security, my, maybe it's my citizenship, and maybe it's my financial stability, maybe uh, whatever it is. Do I, do, do I love it so much? Do I hold such a tight grasp on it that I would... Put Jesus aside in order to, to keep it? Do I value my power and my position and my respect so much that I would choose them over Jesus Christ? Well, then there was Peter. Peter was there. Chapter 22, uh, 54 and following. We didn't read that tonight, but we read that... Uh, when Jesus was seized, Peter followed at a distance. He stood at the fire in the courtyard of the high priest. While Jesus was being held nearby, 
Peter, who had said, Lord, if everyone else deserts you, I'll stick by you. I'm ready to die for you. But then came the test. Servant girl said, he's one of them. He's one of the twelve. He's one of the disciples. No, I'm not, Peter said. I don't know the man. And then two others recognized him. And two more times, Peter denied any connection with Jesus. Matthew's gospel says he even used, used curses to call down curses on him to make them believe him. How could Peter do that? Well, when you're full of fear and you want to save your own skin, you'll do a lot of things. Uh, Philip Yancey, I read his book, uh, The Jesus I Never Knew, some time ago, but I remember him speaking about the Japanese Christians in the early days of the empire uh, when, there were, when the areas, different areas were ruled by what they called shoguns, uh, regional leaders, um, and they threatened the Christians with death or death to their friends if they would not step on a plaque on the ground with the face or the name of Jesus. Many of them did. And they lived after that with shame and guilt. Peter caved as well. And then it says he went out and wept bitterly. Now we know Jesus forgave him, uh, restored him. But it still brings the question, would I cave? You know, would I have done any differently in order to save my hide or my life or someone I love? Would I act as though I don't know Jesus just to get someone to, to like me or, in, or uh, include me or promote me or have a good opinion of me? Would I hide what I believe? You know, it's not such a, a far-off question anymore. From the past, is it? The other day I read about a missionary named Nick Ripkin who wrote about 38 people who came to Christ in Iran. And these former Muslims were preparing for baptism when they learned that their pastor had been kidnapped and tortured and killed. So these new believers... um, that day of the baptism were lined up and down the aisle of the church awaiting their baptism and they were told, your pastor has been killed. Now that you know the cost, are you ready to follow Jesus through baptism and beyond? And not one of those 38 walked away. They all went through with it. So the threat is there and it may, it may become stronger. And the fear is real, fear that often tempts us to hide, hide our identity with Jesus. Would I give in to that fear? Pilate was there. After Jesus was questioned by the high priest, and he confessed that, yes, he was this and is the Son of God, He was taken to the Roman governor because the Jews could not get a death penalty unless the Romans gave a guilty verdict. But this time the charges were different. They were, uh, the charges against Jesus were more political. We see that in chapter 23, verse 2. 
where, um, where the Jews spoke up and said, we found this man misleading our nation. Another version says, plotting against our nation. Okay, like a terrorist. And forbidding us to give tribute to Caesar. So he was a tax protester. And saying that he himself is Christ, a king. He was a threat to the empire. Now these were all false charges, but serious. And so Pilate questioned him. Couldn't find a serious crime deserving of death. So what did Pilate do? What did Pilate do? Uh, on one hand, he had these, this, this innocent man. On the other hand, he had this angry mob uh, led by influential leaders. And he had to do something. So he passed the buck. Passed the buck. Herod's in town. Herod's in town. So I'll send him over to Herod. After all, Jesus is a Galilean. And that's Herod's jurisdiction. Herod got nowhere with Jesus. He sent him back. So Pilate had to do something. Had to do something. He tried to bargain with the crowd. How about if I just give him a good whipping? And then I'll let him go. Maybe that'll satisfy them. No, it didn't. They would hear none of it. Well, how about then if instead of letting Barabbas go, it was customary to release a prisoner each year, prisoner of the, uh, from the Jews. How about if instead of letting Barabbas go, I let Jesus go? Surely they'd rather have Jesus among them than a murderer and a rebel like Barabbas. Well, that didn't work either. So what did Pilate do? He gave in. Even to their demands. He was an ambitious man, ruled not by principle, but by popular opinion. Would not listen to his conscience, so he caved into the crowd. Incidentally, that's a good reason, isn't it, to pray for our elected officials, whatever party they're from, that their ambitions don't cause them to, to overrule their consciences and, and, and to do what's right. Can I see myself in Pilate? Am I so ambitious that I will sometimes bow to popular opinion instead of doing what's right? Will I listen to the voices of the crowd or to my biblically informed conscience? Herod was there. This Jewish king, the Romans had installed over Galilee. This man who had imprisoned and executed John the Baptist. When John had spoken out against Herod's marriage to his brother's ex-wife. Herod was in Jerusalem for the Passover. Jesus was sent over to him by Pilate because his authority covered Jesus' home territory. So now came the big opportunity for Herod. That, uh, that get-together, that rendezvous they had, that he had hoped for. A visit with the miracle worker himself. In chapter 23, verse 8, it says, He had hoped to see him perform some sign, some miracle. I think back to, um, oh, I guess I was in Bible college. It was in the 70s, and there was a popular uh, rock opera called Jesus Christ Superstar. You probably have heard of it. I never got into it much, but I remember the words, 
and, and um, looked up those words to make sure I got them right, of, of Herod and what he sings during that, during that musical. He says, so you are the Christ, you're the great Jesus Christ. Prove to me that you're no fool, walk across my swimming pool. If you do that for me, then I'll let you go free. Now, those words are not in the Bible, of course, but if Herod were alive today, he might put it that way, because Herod was the type of person who says, amuse me, entertain me, satisfy my curiosity. And when he didn't get that amusement, that entertainment, he turned to contempt. He dressed Jesus in a king's robe and sent him back to Pilate. Am I like Herod? Am I attracted to God and to spiritual things because of the spectacular? You know, I'm, am I always looking for some amazing sign or some miraculous answer to prayer in order to um, boost my faith and make me more willing to follow Jesus? Now, God can certainly do miracles, and I'm sure you have prayed and maybe even seen miracles happen. But if my faith is based only on seeing spectacular signs, what happens you know, when my spouse perhaps becomes deathly ill or my child is injured or my home goes up in flames or I lose my job? Will I still love Jesus? Will I still follow him? Will I still trust him when I discover he's not just my personal miracle worker? And then there was the crowd, the crowd outside of Pilate's hall, uh, calling for his death. Some of them, perhaps, we don't know, perhaps they were part of that throng just the week before, welcoming Jesus into Jerusalem. But if, if they weren't, they were certainly aware that the great miracle worker was in town. The man who could set them free, the man who could feed them, the man who could heal them, the man who could stand up to the Romans on their behalf. But then, uh, then they saw Jesus walk into the temple and, and drive away the, those profitable businesses. And then they heard him talking more about the, the kingdom of God in the heart than a national kingdom they were hoping for. And they saw him beaten and humiliated. And they turned on him. He's not our king. We have no king but Caesar. Crowds can be swayed so easily. It's, it's scary sometimes. A crowd can become a, a bloodthirsty mob. Out to crucify someone because they don't agree with them. And it just feels good. It gets the adrenaline flowing. Would I have been in that crowd? Easily swayed, you know, too lazy to think for myself. and Look honestly at the evidence. Willing to go along with the group. Willing to let them do my thinking and my decision making. I share all these various people because sometimes we want to blame a certain group, you know, the Romans or the Jews. But the perpetrators of that horrible crime on that Friday, when the powers of darkness held their sway, 
were, were not the Jews, not just the Jews, not just the Romans. They were people like us. A people full of themselves. People full of their own agendas. People uh, um, interested only in themselves. People wanting to protect their reputation and their power and their lives. People like you and me. Because you see, their sin is our sin. It's the same self-interest. It's the same greed. It's the same envy, the same pride, the same fear, the same ambition, the same cowardly fickleness, the same sin that Jesus came to die for. There's a, a famous painting by that uh, Dutch artist, Rembrandt. It's called The Raising of the Cross. Maybe you've seen it. And uh, it depicts the cross, the crucified Jesus being raised up. And there among the, the men straining to hoist up that cross, there among the people on the painting is Rembrandt himself. He painted himself right into the Picture right there among them as part of the action. I think he realized he was there. John Stott in his book, The Cross of Christ, says before we can begin to see the cross as something done for us, we have to see it as something done by us. Before we can begin to see the cross as something done for us, we have to see it as something done by us. So were you there? Sure, I was there and so were you. Because your sin and my sin put him there. But that sin, praise God, is the sin he took upon himself. And poured out his life's blood for. And because he did, the cross is for us. It's for you. The cross is for me. And the cross is for anyone who turns to faith in Jesus. And because he did, it, is, it truly is Good Friday, isn't it? And we truly are free. Indeed. Let's pray. Our Father, only you can see deeply into our hearts. Only you know what's really going on there. But you know the temptations that we each face. You know the, the struggle it is. You know the times we give in and you know the times we don't give in. But you have promised your steadfast love. That phrase is repeated over and over and over again throughout the Psalms and the rest of the Bible. You have promised your steadfast love will not fail. And we thank you today. We thank you that Jesus willingly took our sins upon himself. That, that uh, he bore our transgressions that by his stripes we have been healed and restored to you. 
Father, cause us to see that cross as something that was done for us, for all of us, and for me and each person here personally, that we might see the, the glorious love behind it that you continue to have for us. Help us to run often to that cross and to receive the, the grace and mercy that you poured out there, available to everyone who comes trusting Jesus. We ask this in his holy and righteous, loving name. Amen.